To avoid criticism, to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. To avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. As I thought about that famous quote, I realized that it, it doesn't even go far enough. If you say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing, there are those who will criticize you for it. She should have said something. She should have done something. I don't know that it's possible to live a life without facing criticism in some way, shape, or form. Now, the real matter is not that we face criticism, because we're going to, but how do we handle that criticism? It's important to consider when criticism comes our way if there's any validity to it. Uh, we can grow and become better because of criticism. We often call this constructive criticism. It is meant not to tear down, but to build up. And, and so you might be evaluated. You might be talked to about something. It's a part of growing. Um, we, should, we should consider criticism if there's any truth to it. As someone said, if one man calls you a donkey, pay him no mind. If, if two men call you a donkey, start looking for hoof prints. But if three men call you a donkey, go get a saddle. I mean, you need to consider uh, criticism, all right? What is really tough, though, is what we might term destructive criticism. 
It's not meant to build up. It's not meant to help. It's not offered out of a love or a desire to help you improve. It's just said to injure, to tear down, to harm you in some way. Now, it's obvious as we turn from chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, where we've been for several weeks, to chapter 2, that Paul was facing some criticism. He was facing some critics. And I'd ask you, if you would, open, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We can look behind the words that are spoken here and see that there were those who are accusing Paul and his co-workers of wrong motives. That they were not really ministering out of pure motives. They were not really ministering out of a pure heart. They had impure motives. They were being critical of them because that's what they were saying they were doing. Now, I've been in full-time ministry for over 25 years. And I can tell you that criticism comes with the job. It's just a part of it. When you're put in a place where you minister to people, uh, there are a lot of armchair pastors and preachers out there And uh, criticism is part and a lot with it. But it's not just full-time ministers. It's not just those who are vocational ministers. No, if you seek to serve the Lord in your life, if you seek to stand for the truth, you too are going to face unjust criticism. Things that are not true, things that uh, impugn your character, and, and it's not fun. The fact of the matter is, if you live just the Christian life, take away leadership and ministry, if you just seek to live as a Christian in modern-day America, uh, you realize, I hope, that our message is not popular. And it's becoming less so every single day. We're living in a nation now that gives a whole month, or months, if you will, to celebrating sin, parading sin, glorying in sin. That's the nation where we live. And we have to make a decision as believers... Are we going to stand for the truth? Are we going to obey God and live for Him? Or are we going to find ways to subtly soften the message of the Gospel, to soften the message of God's Word, and seek to make our message and our life more palatable to those who do not know or love God? Now, in a real way, in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is defending the ministry that he and his helpers did among the Thessalonians And I'm convinced this is not so much about Paul. It's not just Paul saying, I'm going to defend myself. No, this is about the ministry of the gospel. You see, those who were critical of Paul and and those who were trying to tear down the work that God did through Paul and his associates, they were not just enemies of Paul. They were really enemies of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. And these new believers here in Thessalonica, now imagine they've come to faith in Christ. They're baby Christians in many regards. They're in difficulty. They're facing opposition. And imagine that there are those speaking to them now saying, you've been duped, you've been fooled. Paul and Silas and those, they're just a bunch of, you know, hucksters. They're just out to get your money. They're just out to to get things for themselves. What they told you is not really true. And so Paul comes to the defense of the gospel in many regards. And he writes to these young Christians here and he sets the record straight. Now, I want you to notice as we read through the first 12 verses, I want you to notice that Paul is going to call to them about the things that they know. He's going to appeal to their recollection. He's going to say things like, as you remember and you are witnesses and as you know. And I want you to watch for that word know, K-N-O-W, as we read. Because he's going to hearken back to the time that he spent with them. And later in the message, we'll actually go back and we'll see that in the book of Acts where they spent time together and how this church was established. But right now, let's read the first 12 verses of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. I want you to watch out for the words, know 
you remember, you are witnesses. And see how he's appealing to their memory. Beginning at verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict or much opposition. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. We might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, Paul really lays out a lot in these 12 verses. And they're beneficial to all of us, not just those that are full-time pastors or preachers or missionaries, but to all Christians who serve Jesus. Now, I'd like to show you this morning six marks of a godly ministry. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, we're just going to get a couple of them in today because we're going to run out of time. And so you've got to come back next week and we'll keep going, all right? But we're going to get as far as we can today with a couple of these. But six marks of a gospel ministry that I've gleaned from these verses that we just read together. And as we consider these six marks, I want you to consider your life. I want you to consider your service for Jesus. I want you to consider what God is saying to you in these. And by the way, I'm hoping that today's message is going to be very encouraging. That's my desire as we look at this. It will be very encouraging. Challenging as always, but yes, very encouraging. And so we'll start today and then we'll pick up next time and we'll keep going as God gives us time in the days to come. Six marks of a godly ministry. First of all, notice that it's not in vain. Not in vain. Look again at verse number one. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. The NLT puts it this way, you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. It was not in vain. It was not a failure. I'm so glad that Paul started with this one. Now, it may seem odd to you that maybe one of the marks of a godly ministry is that it's not a failure and it's not in vain, especially when it seems we have so little control over what happens with our ministries. But I want to camp out here for a few minutes and I want to encourage all of us at this point. We have to be careful when we're talking about ministry failure, whose dictionary we're using. When we look up ministry failure, we've got to be careful whose dictionary that we're using. If we use the wrong dictionary and we look up ministry failure, we'll believe that ministry failure looks like this. We don't see much happen. The crowd was small. No one responded Therefore, we failed. No, we need to understand things from God's perspective. Ministry failure, listen, is simply this. 
disobedience. Ministry failure is simply not doing what God has called you to do. If we fail there, we've really failed. Ministry success. Now you say, well, what is ministry success? Ministry success is simply this. It is obedience. To do what God tells us to do and leave the results up to Him. Now, I know this is hard. This is hard when you're standing in shoes like mine as a pastor. It's hard when you're standing in your shoes and you're ministering in certain ways. Sometimes we feel like a failure. You study hard for that class. I mean, you put in a lot of time, effort, hours. I mean, you're looking things up on the Internet. You're getting out books. You're making charts. You're making graphs. You've got a PowerPoint, whatever. And just a few people show up for class that day. You share the gospel with a co-worker and it seems like they could care less. Uh, you faithfully tithe and yet you struggle financially. You pray and you pray and you pray and it seems that nothing ever changes. You invite people and you invite and you invite and it seems nobody ever comes. And in a lot of ways, when those sorts of things happen, it feels like we are failing, that we're a failure. But you've got to remember something very, very important. And I want this to be an encouragement to you, an encouragement to me. Success is not about visible results. It's about obedience. Obedience to God is success. Because obviously we cannot control other people. We cannot control their response. We cannot control really anything in that regard. And God has not called us to. He's called us to faithfully obey Him and do what He's told us to do. If I can share from a personal testimony, I struggled with this greatly when it came to our ministry that we launched the other year here from Red Hill, our Thrive Ants and Youth Ministry, a county-wide ministry. I, I obeyed the Lord. I, I launched out in this ministry, and we had some wonderful meetings. In fact, many of you very graciously and generously helped. You were involved and, I mean, we saw God do some wonderful things in that ministry. But the interesting thing was I thought that ministry was going to be a long-term ministry. It was going to start and continue going for months and maybe years to come. But no matter how hard I tried, I worked or I prayed, I couldn't get buy-in from enough people within the county to make it sustainable, to make it a long-term ministry. And that bothered me. Greatly bothered me. I didn't understand it because I obeyed the Lord. I did what you told me to do, Lord. And we had you know, two or three good things happen here. And then it seems like it just all quit. Instead of thriving, it became a dying thing. And, and, and felt like a failure. And, and I still don't have many of the answers to the questions that I would like to have answers to. But listen, it, I have to believe that it was not in vain. Why? Because it was done in obedience. And when things like that happen, you realize that seed was sown and only God really knows at this point and only eternity will reveal what God has done with the seed that is sown, with the ministry that's gone forth, even though it was a very short-term thing, it was not a failure. Why? Because it was done in obedience with, I believe, the right heart and the right motives. And so in your own life, when things come up and you feel like I'm obeying the Lord and that this doesn't turn out the way you thought it was going to or it feels like a failure, stop and ask yourself, did I do it in obedience? Did I do it with the right heart? Were my motives right? And if you can say yes to all of those things, you are a success because you obeyed God. 
And we obey God, as Charles Stanley has said many, many times um, in his principles, obey God and leave all the consequences to Him. But it can seem like in the midst of ministering, whether it's a personal ministry to your family, friends, co-workers, it can seem at times that you are failing. Boy, can I just tell you, parenting can feel like that at times. They just don't get it. Well, that's because they're like you. Because your parents probably thought the same thing as did mine. But it's that day by day sowing, correcting, disciplining, training, that dedication, day after day, week after week, year after year, sowing, loving, realizing that God is working in ways that you and I cannot see. And so I want you to be encouraged today that if you're obedient in what God has called you to do, even when it seems like you have failed or are failing, you haven't if you're doing what you're doing in obedience to the glory of God. Paul very clearly says, listen, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It was not a failure. Now, here's the interesting thing. I said all that, but in Paul's case, what happened here doesn't, doesn't look like failure. Why? Because all these people got saved. And a church was launched. And as we studied last time, their impact was tremendous. They were impacting a region with their testimony of the gospel. And so sometimes our ministries, they look successful and they feel successful. And we see visible fruit. And so we know, well, that's not in vain, not if it's done for the glory of God. But then you have critics come up and criticize what's taking place. Well, what do you do with that? Well, we see a second mark of a godly ministry. And it's simply this. It's bold. It's bold. Look at verse number 2. But even after we had suffered before, and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now this takes us back to Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are on their second missionary journey. They arrive in Philippi. You remember the church in Philippi, I know, because you have the book of Philippians. Love the book of Philippians. But you remember, if you, if you think back to the history there in Acts chapter 16, you had that de demonic girl begins to follow Paul and Silas around and they eventually deliver her from the demonic possession. Her masters, who were making a lot of money, become very angry about that. They raise a ruckus. They, talk, they take Paul and Silas. They beat them with rods. They put them in the prison. You remember? They're singing there. God miraculously delivers them. The Philippian jailer is saved. All that's Acts chapter 16. Now, Acts chapter 17 is where Thessalonica, where Thessalonians come into play. In fact, I'll ask you to go to Acts chapter 17. Let's go over there and look at it together. Now, in Philippi, notice what he just said here. Listen as you're turning to Acts chapter 17. But even after we suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now, how would you respond 
If you've been beaten for the Gospel, you've been chained for the Gospel, you're in jail for the Gospel, how would you respond? Would you have a little meeting among your group there and say, hey, let's talk about this. Maybe we need to try a different route. Maybe we need to soften the message a little bit. Maybe we need to change things a little bit. No, maybe even we need to quit and go home because obviously, I mean, we're trying to do God's work and it looks like that nothing's going right here. Maybe we're in the wrong. Is that what Paul and Silas do? No. Because he says right here, even after we'd suffered before and were spitely treated Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you. Now, you in Acts chapter 17? Let's see what happens in Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, see, he didn't change anything, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That's why we, many believe that he was not in Thessalonica very long. Three or four weeks, maybe. Maybe longer, but we see three Sabbaths mentioned here. Now look at verse 3 of Acts 17. They were in the synagogue doing what? Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and now we have Gentiles coming in, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now look at verse 5. But when the Jews, but the Jews who were not persuaded, notice what, what motivated them. Becoming envious. One of the greatest challenges and temptations in ministry is becoming envious of others. Becoming envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city, this is Thessalonica now, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring, out, bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is no, another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Hmm. Did you notice that Paul and Silas did not let trouble and opposition silence them? He says very clearly in our passage today that they had the boldness of God in their life. They were bold in their God. Now, we're reminded of some important things as we look at this account from Philippi to Thessalonica with Paul and Silas. We're reminded of the truth that telling the truth can lead you into a lot of trouble. Telling the truth can get you in a lot of trouble. You see, if you tell the truth in our world... There are going to be a lot of people that do not like you. In fact, they're going to really dislike you. In fact, some are going to hate you. You're not going to be popular. And you're not going to be included. I think about how many Christians today are trying to straddle the fence here. In other words, they're trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity or the Christian life. I see it. 
And what they do is they make small adjustments, small accommodations to fit wherever they find themselves at the moment in order to be accepted. And so on Sundays at church, they are a model Christian. But on Monday at school or work, they'll make slight adjustments to their behavior, to whatever it is they're doing, so they can be accepted and received and popular and so forth. And it's so tempting. It's so tempting to do this. We, we want to live trouble-free lives as much as possible. No one in their right mind says, hey, sign me up for trouble. I mean, I, just, I, don't, I don't want trouble. And so we can just make small adjustments so we can be liked and accepted and included to be popular, to be received, to be a part of the group. Now, now don't misunderstand me. Don't go in being weird on purpose. Some Christians, sadly, are like that. And they wear their Christianity as a badge of weirdness and then claim persecution. No, you're just weird. That's what, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when it comes down to where decisions have to be made between right and wrong, and you choose the wrong path, the wrong decision, the wrong behavior in order to be accepted and not face any kind of pushback because of your faith in Christ. That's what I'm talking about. Straddling defense. It's impossible. The Bible says it very clearly. It's impossible. You cannot serve two masters. You can't do it. And so there are those who just kind of live saying, well, we'll water things down a bit. We'll soften the message some. There are ministries that go like this. There are pastors who do this. We won't talk about things like sin because that's uncomfortable. That feels very harsh. That feels very hard. It feels very judgmental. And we want to be positive all the time. We won't talk about things like hell because that's unpleasant. We'll put a positive spin on everything. We'll smile a lot. We'll just keep everything upbeat and positive. But beloved, you cannot preach the Word of God and ignore sin and hell and judgment. Now, we ought to speak the truth in love, yes. We're not talking about just, just you know, railing at people and just being... Uh, almost sinful in your message. No, we're talking about speaking the whole counsel of God. See, the God we serve is a God of love, a God of justice, a God of mercy, a God of wrath. Notice how I mentioned those different things. A lot of times we just want to focus on the positive things, what we consider positive. But by the way, everything that describes God is positive. Because God is God. He's perfect. When we speak of His love, it's perfect love. When we speak of His judgment, it's perfect judgment. When we speak of His mercy, it's perfect mercy. When we speak of His wrath, it's perfect wrath. He's not like us. He doesn't just flaw off the handle or get angry sinfully. Never has He done that. Never will He do that. Everything He does is perfect because He is perfect. As I said before, God is not a buffet where we pick and choose what we like. And by the way, the Word of God is not a buffet. I think about the one, one of our founding fathers. I, I hesitate to say the name because I may get it wrong and I don't want to misconstrue, but I remember one who, who took a Bible and cut out all the miraculous things. Didn't believe the miraculous things. Literally cut them out. There are a lot of Christians who do the same thing. They may not take scissors to the Word, but they read things and say, no, that's not, that's not right. That, that's not right. That's not right. 
I need to remind us all that God has not given us the editorship over His Word. The, the whole Bible is true, and we have to preach and teach and live out what God's Word says. We need to speak the truth in love, and we need to speak the truth. And I think it's here that we really need to pray. We need to pray for boldness to really speak the truth in our godless society. And I'm just going to let you know, I really believe what I'm saying now, that it's going to become harder and harder and harder if the Lord does not return and rapture us home first because we're seeing our society more and more turn against the truth of the Word of God and the truth of the Gospel. And I really believe we could face literal, literal persecution in some way, shape, or form. I don't know if it'll be beating with rods. I don't know what may come. I think it'll be other things first, and it'll continue to get harder and harder as we go along. So we have to make up our minds with God helping us. Are we going to live the Christian life or are we not? I think persecution has shown through the years and shows throughout Scripture and church history. It really does separate the wheat from the chaff or the sheep from the goats. One of the reasons that we know that the resurrection is true is because these apostles and these disciples were willing to give their life because of the resurrection. People don't usually die for a fable. They knew it was true. And so it's going to show, I think, for many of us, if our faith in Christ is real, if our belief in Christ is real, we need to really pray for boldness in order to live the life that God has called us to live in Christ. Because I find with Paul and Silas here, they were beaten and they were mistreated in Philippi, but they kept going. They were mistreated in Thessalonica, yet they kept going. We find it in the life of our Lord Jesus. They beat him, mocked him, plucked the beard from his face. Uh, They did all these horrible things to him and he died in our place that we might have life. And he took up his life. And if they killed the one that we love and serve, why are we surprised when we face pushback? Paul and Silas went from one hardship to another, opposition after opposition. And you know what? They were not failures. Because I need to encourage you here. I think sometimes... When we face pushback for our faith and persecution for our faith, and we miss out or people exclude us or people don't acknowledge us anymore or or there's a cost to be paid and we pay that cost, we feel like at times maybe we've failed. We begin to second-guess ourselves. We begin to wonder, am I doing right? But listen, if you truly live with a heart for the Lord and you do things because God has told you to do them and you do them with the right motive and the right heart and you face opposition, you are not a failure. In fact, opposition can actually be a sign that we're actually doing things right. Why? Because the enemy doesn't like it when the Word and the Gospel is going forth. And we have a real enemy. And we face, we face spiritual battles. And we've talked about that in the past. We need to talk about it again and think about it on an ongoing basis that we're involved in a real spiritual battle. In fact, opposition could be a sign that we're having an impact in doing real ministry. Why? Because the devil hates us. And he hates what we stand for. And he hates our Lord, the one that we believe and love. So be encouraged, beloved. Remember, I told you, I'm I'm here to encourage you. You say, well, I don't feel very encouraged. Well, well, let's talk about it again. Your labor for the Lord is not in vain. When you face pushback for your faith, it's not in vain. 
when you stand boldly for Christ and it costs you, you're not a failure if you're being obedient to the Lord. So be encouraged. If we have trouble serving Jesus, that usually means we're on the right track. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon. There he is. He's been called the Prince of Preachers. Now, to kind of give you a, a setting for when he lived, Charles Spurgeon died in 1892. So he died before we even got to the 1900s. Pastored large crowds, preached to tremendous crowds, but he suffered a firestorm of criticism from the beginning of his ministry in London. In fact, Spurgeon faced, a, as this author wrote, a steady stream of articles that trashed his sermons and pamphlets appearing denouncing his methods, his motives, his mannerisms, and his message. He was vilified in cartoons and caricatures. Several writers questioned whether he was even converted, if he was even saved. You know, it's one thing when they attack something, but even to say, I don't think the man's even saved. The author sharing this said, at first, this storm of cynicism and censure deeply hurt Spurgeon, who described himself as broken in agony. Let me just stop for a moment. Let me just remind all of us. I'm not saying today that criticism is easy. I'm not saying pushback is easy. I'm not saying being torn down is easy. Being called things and being questioned is not easy. No, no. And Spurgeon understood that. He was broken in agony, but his wife, thank God for godly wives, for good wives, but his wife prepared a plaque. And on that plaque, she put these words from Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And she hung this plaque on the wall of their room where Charles would see it first thing every day. If you remember the verses, they go like this. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So think about it. Each day as Spurgeon got up, getting ready to face an onslaught of criticism and attack and just tearing down. He's reminded of the truth of the Word of God that he was actually blessed. He was blessed. When they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, false for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. And you know what? The verse worked. <laughs> the plaque worked. And in time, Spurgeon learned to take criticism and the tearing down and stride. Now, it's only going to happen, beloved, in our lives. We can only live through that kind of thing if we keep coming back to Jesus and keep coming back to Jesus. I faced it in my life in ministry. I think maybe others here have as well. And you've got to keep coming back to the Lord and take those hurts and those words and that unjust criticism and that unkindness and say, Lord Jesus, I give it to you. You understand it. You know all about it. You faced the worst of all. And you did it for me. I want to leave you with this thought. Amid criticism and opposition, let us be bold for the Lord. This verse is where I want to leave you today. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord, for the Lord, in the Lord, is not in vain. In the Lord. It's not a failure. So be bold for the Lord Jesus. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the testimony of Paul and Silas and others in Scripture. Lord Jesus, you told us in your word that if we follow you and serve you, we're going to face persecution and pushback. That the servant is not greater than the Lord. And Lord Jesus, thank you for enduring all that you did for us. Literally giving your life for us, your blood for us, your body for us, and then taking it again. Father, we are weak and needy people. We're fearful at times. I'll be the first to admit, Lord, it's scary to think about what we could have to face because we love you and serve you. And we know that within our own strength and our own enablement, we cannot stand. But we can in you. We can do all things through you. So help us to put on the whole armor of God and having done all to stand. Help us, Lord, to lovingly share your truth, but share it. Help us, Lord, when the hurtful things happen, when the hurtful words come, to give them to you, to give them to you again, and continue resting in your goodness and your love. Thank you for the example of Paul and Silas and their co-workers. May we be faithful as well. Help us never to soften the message to try to accommodate those who don't know you and don't love you. But help us to always speak truth and nothing but the truth as you help us, O oh God. Work in this invitation, I pray. There's a brother or sister right now that might be dealing with this in their own lives and they're hurting. Would you just comfort their hearts? Would you wrap your loving arms around them and help them to rest in you? We praise you and thank you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is 436. The altar is open. If you would like to come and pray, we would invite you to do so. We can help you in some way. We would love to do that. But uh, this talks about wherever God leads us, we go. And so as we sing through this song, I hope you can sing it honestly. Where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him. With him. All the way. 436, let's stand up and sing out. I can hear.